This is Romans chapter 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing again as we seek him in his word this morning. Father, Lord, this is your word. Your word is settled in heaven. And I pray this morning that you would settle your word in our hearts, that we would grow by your word, that we would desire it as the pure milk of the word. Father, teach your people, bless your people for your sake, for your great name, that you would be praised in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we are back in Romans chapter 2, as Pastor Stan read. And I want to start with, um, with this quote. It's hard to look inward. External acts of religion are easy to achieve. To lift up the eye to heaven, to bow the knee, to read a prayer... This requires no more labor than for a Catholic to count his beads. But to examine a man's self, to turn in upon his own soul, to take the heart as a watch, all in pieces, to see what is defective is not easy. Reflective acts are hardest. The eye can see everything but itself. It is easy to spy the faults of others, but hard to find out our own. A quote is from Thomas Watson, who was a great, by God's grace, English nonconformist Puritan preacher who lived in the 17th century. And he points out the difficulty of self-examination. Why is it so hard for people to examine themselves? Well, in short, people don't like to have their darkness exposed. People have high opinions of themselves and they measure themselves by the wrong standard, which is by other people rather than by the perfect standard of Almighty God. People are often conscious of the guilt that they have for past sins. And they would rather turn a blind eye to those than to deal with themselves in their hearts. In this portion of our text, verses 17, 17 through 24, Paul is addressing the self-righteous Jew, the one who identifies himself as a child of God and seems to say and seems to do all the right things. Listen again to verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, that is, converts to Judaism, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You see, this so-called Jew, he has the right form outwardly, the right appearance of religion, but inwardly he lacks the substance of truth. In point of fact, he is a hypocrite. He is one who wears a mask, pretending to be someone he is not. So Paul puts a number of questions to this fictitious Jew and also to us for self-examination. Look at verses 21 and 22. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? What exactly is Paul doing in this section with these questions? Well, he is appealing to an ally that he knows he has in the conscience of every man who is born in this world. Everyone knows instinctively because God has put it in them what is true, what is right, and what is wrong. He describes that, in fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 19, where he says, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. God has revealed that he is to every man. No one is an atheist, truly. Everyone knows that God exists. And they know something of his invisible attributes. They are clearly seen. That is to say, his glory has been put on display And we can see something of the power and the majesty and the glory of God. All of us have that ability. And in verse 15 of chapter 2, Paul makes reference to the work of the law. He says, these Gentiles who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. You see, the work of the law, again, is to show that God is, that he is holy. And he makes every man aware of that fact. And conscience in man bears testimony to that. It is like a radar system that tells man when he is out of bounds, when he is sinning. And it accuses him with guilt. And it acquits him when he's doing the right thing. The word of God, the law of God, is like a light. Paul is using these questions like a light to prick the conscience of all of us, but especially the hypocrite, using the law. The law is like a mirror. It shows us who we truly are. It exposes us. Or if you want to think about it this way, it is like gas poured into a small flame. That flame of of a pilot light that we have, which is like the conscience of every man, the light of truth that we have. The law comes like a gas, and by God's grace, he causes that pilot light to combust into flame in the conscience of every man to to really overwhelm him with a sense of his own sin and to see his need of a savior. So we're dealing with questions of self-examination, not only for this Jew that he addresses in verse 17, but also for ourselves, that we would see our true motives in the deeds that we do. Last week, I gave you um, three reasons why it's important that we self-examine, three reasons. The first was that the hypocrite always fails to self-examine. That's verse 21. He is a religious pretender. He's one who wears a mask and he will not look inwardly. He only looks outward. Number two is it's very possible to keep the letter of the law and yet break the law by breaking the spirit of the law, breaking the spirit of the law. We see that in verses 21 and 22. We looked at the questions of stealing and adultery last week. One may not take the physical goods that belong to another, what we call stealing, but do you rob others by exploiting them in some way for your own personal gain? And do you rob God of the glory that's due his name by withholding thanksgiving and praise from him for every grace that he provides? You may not have joined yourself unlawfully to another person's spouse, which is the letter of the law with regard to adultery. But have you been a spiritual adulterer in departing from the Lord and befriending the world and its pleasures and turning to your own wisdom and knowledge to solve your problems? The third point is that the honor of God is at stake in verses 23 and 24. My hope is to share that with you. I think today we're just going to focus on verse 22 and really the latter half of verse 22 which is, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? The Jews in Paul's day hated idolatry. And just so that we get the proper sense of their hate, Paul uses the word abhor, deliso in Greek, which means to turn away from something that stinks, to turn away from a terrible stench. That's how they thought of idolatry, the worship of any image, of any 
figure, any likeness or representation that's created by man's mind or man's hand to receive the worship of man. That was a terrible stench in the Jews' nose. Why? Well, because the Gentiles, whom they viewed as dogs, and when we say dogs, I don't mean like the nice pets that we have today, but the unclean roaming scavengers throughout Jerusalem, these were the Gentiles in the Jews' mind, and they were idolaters. They were unclean. Look back at verse 23 of chapter 1. Paul says concerning these Gentiles, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They dishonored God by changing the incorruptible into something corruptible like themselves and like uh, unclean animals even. So the Jews hated the Gentiles because of their idolatry. Now, the Jews historically were not without idolatry themselves. If you know the history of the scriptures and of Israel, you'll know that the Jews were guilty of the very same thing, of worshiping idols, of setting up altars and shrines and high places and worshiping false gods under all kinds of trees. And God had warned them time and time again by sending his prophets and calling them to repent, to turn from their sin. But they only stiffened their necks in rebellion and in unbelief. And they continued in their idolatry. And so God brought severe judgment upon them. In the northern kingdom, in Israel, in the 8th century before Christ, Assyria came and took the northern uh, tribes captive, took them away to Assyria and invaded their land. And the same thing happened with Babylon in the southern kingdom of Judah in the 6th century B.C., and so Paul asked the question to the Jew in his day, even though you hate idols, given the history that you've had, it's a terrible stench in your nose, yes, indeed, but do you rob temples, he asks. Your translation might also say, do you commit sacrilege? Sacrilege. That means, do you misuse the sacred? The word for Robbing temples is an interesting one. It's yerosileo in Greek, which is two words. It's a compound of yeron, which means temple, and silao, the verb that means to rob, to strip, or to plunder. So put together, one who robs temples or strips or plunders temples is the word. An alternative translation might be something like this. You who abhor idols and their, cont and their contamination, do you not hesitate to plunder their shrines? In other words, you who are repulsed by the stench of idolatry, are you still willing to breathe those noxious fumes for the sake of personal gain? Some commentators have a hard time with this particular portion of the verse, and they even go so far as to deny that the Jews ever committed temple robbery. They'd argue that there is actually no precedent in Scripture for literally robbing temples, but the Scriptures don't support that argument. In fact, um, if you take King Hezekiah, for example, in the second uh, Kings account, chapter 18, what we understand is that in the fourth year of his reign, Hezekiah, who was king of Judah, saw the Assyrian king come from the north and take control of Samaria, the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. But he, Hezekiah, unlike his father Ahaz, refused to serve as a vassal for Assyria. And he held his ground. He said, I will not serve Assyria. And as he continued in his reign in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, the king of Assyria evaded, invaded Hezekiah's territory in the south. And he took control of all the fortified cities, the scripture says. And so Hezekiah, fearful and in an attempt to keep Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria from invading Jerusalem told him that he was sorry for ever rebelling against him, that he would, in fact, pay him a huge sum of money in an attempt to buy him off and keep him from invading Jerusalem and laying siege to it. And so what did Hezekiah do? Well, rather than consulting with Isaiah the prophet and taking the matter before the Lord and trusting God for his protection, 
he cuts a deal with a foreign king and he pays the king with precious metals from God's house. In fact, the scripture says in 2 Kings 18, 16, that Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the temple and from the pillars, which amounted to about one ton, about 2,000 pounds of gold. And in addition to that, he took all the silver from the house of God, from the temple, and all the silver from his personal treasury in the king's house, which was about 11 tons, 22,000 pounds of silver, and gave that to Sennacherib as a peace, quote-unquote, offering. But Sennacherib was still dissatisfied. That, that did not appease him. In fact, he wanted Hezekiah's complete surrender. So you could say that Hezekiah robbed the temple of the Lord, even though he may have intended to repay the money when he could. Of course, we have the account of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, their king, who came to the southern kingdom. And when they laid siege to Jerusalem, they stripped the temple of God. They were told, took all the articles from the house of God, great and small, and took them to Babylon. You can read that account in 2 Chronicles 36. So a pagan nation robbed the temple of God. And then there's evidence that this temple robbery idea was even practiced in New Testament times. Paul, for example, in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, you might remember the scene there. There's a great uproar in the city of Ephesus when a certain silversmith named Demetrius hears uh, the gospel from Paul. And he spreads the word that Paul is turning away people from idols and from worshiping idols, which would kill the jobs, the economy of Ephesus and all those who are involved in making shrines to their goddess, Diana, as Demetrius was one such person. And in Acts 19, verse 35, we read this. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. So temple robbery was a known practice in the New Testament. In fact, there's an interesting account by the Jewish historian Josephus in his writings. Uh, this is an anecdotal story. It's a, it's a fictitious story. It's not true. Um, and it was fabricated by an anti-Semite, somebody who is against the Jews. And according to the story, there was a group of condemned Jewish lepers who were sent out to the desert to die. And when they start out on their trip, they get to a land that they later call Judea. And when they arrive, they build a temple there called, excuse me, they build a city that's called Yerosila. Yerosila, which sounds like Jerusalem. That was named the town of temple robbers. So even though that's not a true account, the idea of temple robbery was associated with Jerusalem. It was a known practice. The question I have this morning for us is this. What does God have to say about this issue? That's really what matters. So if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 7. In this chapter, God is instructing Israel about how they should behave toward the idolatrous nations that he would later deliver into their hands. And he says in verse 25 of chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, this, You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. Now, God is not talking explicitly about robbing temples here, but clearly God is prohibiting that any valuables be taken that are associated with idolatry, right? Same principle, really, as robbing temples. It is to be abhorred. It's to be a terrible stench in the nose of the people. And do you remember the account of Achan in Joshua chapter 7? We talked about this some weeks back. 
John uh, Aiken was somebody who violated this command in Deuteronomy 7.25. How did he do that? Well, he took of the so-called accursed things after Israel's victory at Jericho. And what were those things? Well, we are told in the scripture that they were a Babylonian garment, silver and gold of a pagan people called the Amorites. In other words, Achan brought unholy spoils into his tent. He hid them out of sight where no one would see them. But it was in the midst of the camp of Israel that he did this. And he thought it wouldn't harm anyone. I mean, why did he do it? He was greedy. He wanted personal gain. Listen to what God tells Joshua about this matter in Joshua 7, verse 11. Joshua 7, 11. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. See, Achan thought that he was getting away with something because he stole and nobody saw him steal. He coveted goods. He says that from his own lips when he confessed his sin. And he took them from it for himself and he hid them under his tent. But there was one who saw him take it, and that is God. The God who sees everything. The God who looks upon the heart and sees our thoughts and intentions. Achan violated God's command. And he did so by stealing what God had called accursed. And then he withheld the truth about his theft. Right? So God indicts him for both stealing and deception. In other words, Achan took what God had cursed, what was unholy for his own personal gain. He took it to himself and God killed him in response. In fact, he his family, his animals, all his possessions were gathered up and all Israel came and they stoned all of them and then they burned all of them in fire. So God is serious about this principle. Same principle we see when Saul fought the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15. You might recall the prophet Samuel, he told King Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites, not to spare a single soul or any of their possessions, to destroy all of it. Utterly is the word that's used. And what did Saul do? Well, he spared King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and he also spared the best of his livestock. And then he tried to justify it by saying that they would offer those things to the Lord as sacrifice. And we don't know for sure why Saul spared Agag, but it certainly seems that he and his people wanted to profit from the victory. Perhaps he wanted to parade Agag around as a trophy of his victory over the Amalekites. But the point is that whatever Saul's motive, it was a direct violation of God's command through Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, 22. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul, God does not want your offerings he wants your obedience. To disobey God is to be an idolater in the sight of God. And the idol, Saul, is yourself. God views you as one who practices witchcraft. And brethren, witchcraft and idolatry were both sins that were punishable by death. So Saul was rejected from being king and God tore the kingdom away from him. Because Saul took what God had cursed for his own personal gain. He committed sacrilege. Back to Romans chapter 2. So when Paul says, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Were the Jews literally robbing temples? Well, there's some evidence to suggest that they did. But the question this morning is this. What's the spirit behind this sacrilege that is such an abomination to God? And it's this. 
God's people were never, never to mix the holy with the unholy. Never to mix that which is holy with what is profane. That's the heart of sacrilege and really what's behind, I believe, this word temple robbery. Now, it's important to understand God's intention for Israel. And his intention was this, that his people would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Turn to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. In the third month after the children of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on the same day they came to the wilderness of Sinai, for they had departed from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped there before the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So it's clear God's intention for his people was that they should be holy. Holy because he is holy. That they should be a special people, a treasure for him. And that they should be priests. A kingdom of priests. Now turn to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10 lays out the conduct that God prescribed for his priests. Just look at the verses starting at verse 8 through 11. Leviticus 10, starting in verse 8. <clears throat> then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So God wanted his priests to be discerning, to be able to distinguish between holy and unholy. They were not to be intoxicated with strong drink. Why? So that they could be sober-minded and discern, divide, holy from unholy, clean from unclean. Special from profane, that which is dedicated to the Lord from the common. In other words, they were never to mix the holy and the unholy. That's God's intention for his priests. And the whole nation is to be a kingdom of priests. So that's his intention for all his people. In fact, this was the reason, this, this idea of separation of the holy from the unholy was the, the whole reason for all the civil and ceremonial laws that we see in Israel. They were to be separate in every way from the pagan nations that surrounded them, separate in the food that they ate, uh, separate in the uh, clothes that they wore, separate in the um, families that they would have and how they would marry, separate in their customs, their feast days, their celebrations, their rituals, altogether different from the nations. And as Israel was to be a special treasure to the Lord above all people, their God was to be Israel's special treasure above all gods. He was to be most highly esteemed and valued above all. There is no place for idolatry and idols in the kingdom of God. In the holy nation, there must be a separation between the holy and the profane. God is the fount of every blessing. He means to bless his people with everything that they need to function as priests in his kingdom, in his holy nation. But Israel constantly mixed the holy and the unholy. They failed to make this distinguishing all were guilty from the common person all the way up to the priest. And I, I'd like to give you uh, four ways this morning that 
the Jews mixed or commingled the holy and the unholy. It's not an exhaustive list, but I think it is pretty comprehensive for the idea that Paul is conveying. And so let's start with this. The first is, how did the, the Jews mix the holy with the unholy? By taking for themselves what is unholy. By taking to themselves or for themselves what is unholy. So that would be the example of Achan that we just talked about. He took the accursed thing because he was greedy. He took it for himself from an illicit source, from a source that was disapproved by God. Or Saul, uh, keeping some of the spoil of the Amalekites and not utterly destroying it. He took it for himself, for his own greed, for his own fame. But there's another way that they mixed the holy and the unholy. By taking for themselves what is holy. That is to say, what is reserved only for God. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 2. First Samuel 2 has the account of the wicked sons of Eli. <clears throat> and I want to read from verses 12 through 17. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did, so they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, no, but you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Since the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. This account um, is a departure from the command, the ordinance that God had given for the priests and what was due for them. When it says um, in verse 13 that the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook and then he would put it in and take the meat out for himself as much as he wanted. That was not what God had prescribed for the, the Levites, for the priests. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 7, there were two cuts, if you will, of meat that were prescribed it was the breast of the animal and it was the right thigh. Those were the two that were consecrated and set apart for the priest to eat. The fat was considered the best part. That was to be burned for the Lord as an offering, as a sweet smelling aroma for God. So what's happening in this account here in 1 Samuel 2 is the, the priests are saying, we want the best cuts for ourselves. Give me the meat raw with the fat so that I can eat that. And the people who are bringing these offerings are hating that they have to do this because the priests are taking this by force in direct violation of God's command. And so they abhor, they hate. This is a terrible stench to the offerers of the Lord who are coming before him to worship. The priests are profaning the offering of the Lord. Eli, who is the high priest, the father of these young men named Hophni and Phinehas, he heard the complaints. The scripture says he knew what was going on, but he failed to deal with his sons. He gave him a slap on the wrist and said, my sons, you ought not to do that. That's bad. But he didn't really correct them. Why? Because it tells you that Eli had a problem in his heart. He was honoring his sons more than he honored the Lord and the offering of the Lord. And so, what did God do here? Well, like with Achan, he killed Hophni and Phinehas. In a single day, they both died. And then when Eli heard the news of their death, and specifically of the ark that had been stolen, the ark of God, he fell off his chair backwards, broke his neck. He's a heavy man. So he, yeah, he died too. He was under judgment too. 
So taking to themselves what is reserved for God, that's another way that the Jews mix the holy with the unholy. Here's a third way, by not giving to God what is due him. So this is a similar idea to what we just talked about. If you are taking for yourself what belongs to God, then you're not giving to God what is due him. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Last book of the Old Testament, just before the Gospel of Matthew. Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Listen to what the Lord says through Malachi the prophet. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Israel was robbing God in tithes and offerings. They were not giving to him what was due him. Listen to John MacArthur's commentary on this, which I thought was helpful. He said this, quote, In answer to their query about how they have deviated from God's way and, needed, and need to return, the prophet picked an illustration of their spiritual defection that is very visible and undeniable. The Lord pointed out that they had not brought the required tithes and offerings, those used to fund the theocracy by sustaining the Levites, the national religious festivals, and the poor. But in not paying their taxes and so robbing God, they had robbed themselves, for God had withheld his blessing, end quote. See, God says, honor me first, my people. Honor me first, and I will pour out for you such blessing that you will not be able to contain it. And what is that blessing? Well, look at verse 11. He says, I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. The blessing is fruitfulness. God will not allow anything to impede fruitfulness. In other words, he will make you fruitful. That's the blessing that he pours out. Notice, he doesn't pour out this blessing from the earth somewhere. He pours it out from the windows of heaven. It comes down from above. It's a spiritual blessing. God knows all our needs. Brothers and sisters, he knows our physical needs. He knows that you have need of food and clothing and shelter and everything else in between. And yet he says, what? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. The issue is the priority. Do you prioritize serving God first and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, trusting that he will provide for your needs? Or are you turning to an unholy source for your needs? Are you turning to yourself, perhaps, to meet your needs? there's a fourth way. So third was withholding what is due God's name. And there's a fourth way that Israel mixed the holy and the unholy. And that is by giving to God what is unholy, giving him the wrong thing. Turn back just a page or two in your Bible to Malachi chapter one. Malachi one. Look, starting in verse six. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor, would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? 
but now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness. And you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. See, Israel was offering unacceptable, ceremonially unclean animals sick animals, lame animals, animals that were not fit for the offering of God. They were to bring their best of the flock to God, the unblemished, who is a picture of him who is to come, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, none other than the son of God, Jesus Christ. But they brought the sick and the lame and what does God see in that offering? Nothing more than a heart attitude of contempt for him. And agreed to keep the best for themselves. Notice verse 10. God says, who is there among you? Who is there among even you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? Do you know who God was holding responsible for accepting these offerings? The priests. The priests who knew better, they knew the law of God. They should have turned away those unacceptable offerings. They should never have accepted them. But it shows you that they also had contempt in their heart for the Lord's offering. They were going through the motions, but in their heart they despised God. You might also think about Nadab and Abihu in this same connection. <laughs> they offered to God what was called strange fire, unapproved fire that God did not accept. They thought that they could worship God the way that they wanted to. And what did God do? He killed them. He wiped them out, burned them up. God is very particular, I hope you're seeing, about his law, about his word. He expects it to be obeyed. He expects a heart of obedience. Doesn't want us to go through the motions. And he cares about how he's worshipped. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth, genuinely, with our whole person engaged, not half-heartedly. So how did the Jews fail to distinguish the holy from the unholy was the question I posed. And it's in these four ways, really, by taking for themselves what is unholy, by taking for themselves what is holy and reserved for God, not for them, by not giving to God what is due him, and by giving him the wrong thing, what is unholy. Brothers and sisters, God wants our best. He wants the best of our time, our energy, our resources, our affections. He doesn't want what's left over. He doesn't want what's unclean. He doesn't want us to hold anything back. Why? Because he is a great king and the Lord of hosts. Amen. He will not tolerate the mixing of anything that is holy with what is unholy. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, said this, So the Jews did remarkably, after their captivity in Babylon, that furnace separated them forever from the dross of their idolatry, but they dealt very treacherously in the worship of God. They satisfied the letter of the law. They no longer, after their captivity, built their shrines and altars on the high places. They learned their lesson, so to speak, but in their hearts they were continuing to commit sacrilege. This, brothers and sisters, this point I'm trying to convey of temple robbery, sacrilege, 
This is what it is. It's to be treacherous, not to be honest with God in the worship of God. It's to, to fail to distinguish the holy from the unholy in how we live before him. Now let's look back at Romans 2 and see how Paul forms these questions of self-examination that we've been looking at. Because there's a pattern. Look at verse 21 of Romans 2. He says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You notice that he's forming these as opposites. And so what is the opposite of hating idolatry? Is it not loving idolatry? I think that is the idea that he's conveying here with temple robbery, sacrilege, What's the common motive in all forms of sacrilege? It's idolatry. It's self-worship. It's putting oneself first and doing what I do for personal gain rather than for God's glory. The question I want to leave with you this morning, brothers and sisters, is this. Are we committing sacrilege in our lives? Are we robbing God in some way? Are we mixing the holy with the unholy? Well, when we look at the first way we talked about, by taking for ourselves what is unholy, loved ones, every time we turn to the world and to ourselves in search of blessings and profit, we are committing sacrilege. We're taking for ourselves what is unholy. Don't be like Achan and, and take what is unholy and bring it into the tent of your life and hide it while it's really in the midst of the whole congregation of the people of God. Don't think that your sin won't find you out and that it won't affect other people because it will. We learned that lesson from Achan. Or by taking for ourselves what is holy, what is reserved for God. What is reserved for God, brothers and sisters? Is it not us? Has he not paid the price of our sins and he now owns us as our master? If you are a Christian here this morning, you are not your own anymore. You're owned by God. You're set apart for him. You're, you're holy and you are to be holy. If you live for yourself, if you live for your will, if you live for your pleasures, you are robbing God of what is rightfully his as master and Lord of your life. And to continue to live that way as if you, you are your own master, that's what it means to commit sacrilege. That's the heart of it. Or take... The idea of not giving to God what is due him. Are we giving our best to the Lord in every area of our lives? Do we look at our blessings from the Lord as our blessings that he's given us for our benefit only? Or do we consider that he might be blessing us in order that we might give back to others and so give back to God in that way? And then what about by giving to God what is just wrong, what is unholy? Is our worship like a sick animal in God's sight? Maybe a half-hearted service. Here you go, God. But it's really not our best. We're keeping back for ourselves what is best. Our time, our interests, our affections. Let me give you one other scenario. When trials and hardships come into your life, is our first response to try to figure it out or do we take it before the Lord? Think about Hezekiah. When trouble came knocking on his doorstep, what did he do? Well, the first time he got scared and he trusted in himself and he thought up an idea that he thought was acceptable. He would strip all the gold and the silver and he would give it to Sennacherib just to hope to keep him at bay. And that didn't work. And Sennacherib kept coming. And in fact, he wrote a very threatening letter to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was broken before the Lord. He took that letter, he uh, tore his clothes, he, he was in sackcloth, and he went to the house of God, and he took that letter, and he spread it out before the Lord, we're told. And he sought the Lord. And the Lord said, don't worry, I will take care of Sennacherib. He is judged. Brothers and sisters, that must be our first instinct. And if we don't do that, taking our issues to God, when, when trouble comes knocking on our door, we're committing sacrilege. God help us. May we repent of that and turn from that way of living. 
It's we're talking about leaning on our own understanding. That's a, an affront to God, and it's committing sacrilege. That's idolatry. We must distinguish between the holy and the unholy. We are the royal priesthood. Peter writes about in First Peter chapter two. We are the priests who are to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. We are those who are called the holy nation, God's own holy people, that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Brothers and sisters, there is no fellowship between darkness and light, is there? We are to walk in the light, as First John says, as he is in the light, as the Lord is in the light, and so have communion and fellowship with him. And when we do that, when we walk in the light and others, brothers and sisters, walk in the light, we have fellowship and communion with each other too. We are not to mix the holy and the profane. God told Jeremiah in chapter 2, verse 13, this, which many of you probably have committed to memory. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewn for themselves cisterns, vessels, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God is saying we commit spiritual adultery when we abandon God, our husband, in the moment. And in his place, we craft idols, broken cisterns. And just like broken vessels that can't hold any water, idols cannot hold any trust ultimately because they're useless. They're vain. We need to stop thinking about idols as things outside of ourselves and start thinking about ourselves as the number one idol in our lives and the real battle that rages which is this are we walking in the spirit and in the light or are we walking in darkness and in the flesh are we placing our trust in god or are we placing our trust in ourselves and in our abilities or religious activities what is it ultimately that god wants of us We talked about this on Wednesday night. It was wonderful. The prophet Micah asked the right question. He says this, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? There's the question this morning. What does God require of us, brothers and sisters? The answer is this, to do justly, that is to say, to do what's right, righteousness, to love mercy, compassion, long-suffering, and to walk humbly, with the Lord our God. In other words, God wants us to be like him. I'm not saying he wants us to be him. We don't become gods. But he wants us to emulate his character. He wants his attributes, his characters to be formed in us as Christ is formed in us. Again, be holy for I am holy. Be separate from sin. Do not practice what you formerly practiced. When we read Psalm 40 this morning, God says, and he also said it in 1 Samuel, we saw with uh, Samuel and Saul, sacrifice and burnt offering is not what he wants, right? He wants obedience. He wants a heart of obedience. And you know who Psalm 40 really points to? The Lord Jesus Christ, who said, it is written of me, as it is written in the law, the scroll of the law, I am come to do your will, O God. That's what he wants. He wants a heart of obedience, one who can fulfill Every command that God has given, fulfill his will perfectly. Brothers and sisters, can we do that? No, we can't. That's why we trust in Jesus Christ, because he did. But once you have trusted and you've been declared righteous, this is what we're getting to. This is all leading up to the gospel, the heart of the gospel, which is that we are justified by faith in Christ alone. When you've been justified, you have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and he enables you to be obedient. I'm not talking about perfection like Jesus. He's our perfection. But he enables us to be obedient as a pattern of life. Our pattern is no longer sin. Our practice is now holiness. It's righteousness. And what is it that God wants of us in terms of sacrifice? Nothing more than our very selves, our souls. Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
He wants you, brother and sister. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you as a living sacrifice to lay down your life constantly before him. You need to die daily and take up your cross and follow Christ. And so do I. He doesn't want us to be conformed to the world. He wants us to be transformed. He wants Christ formed in us as we set our minds on the word of God, as we set our minds on things above in the heavens where Christ is. He's forming Christ in us. Rejoice, brothers and sisters. He's forming Christ in us. He's making us holy. He has declared us holy and he's making us holy. I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that Christians don't sin. We sin. We're guilty of this sacrilege that I've been talking about this morning. But that is no longer our practice in life. The child of God is one who is convicted by his sin, who confesses his sin, who repents, which means he turns away from his sin. And he experiences the forgiveness of the Lord daily. That's the Christian. He is empowered by God to obey, not perfectly, but as a pattern of life. Now, contrast that with the hypocrite that we're talking about here, the Jew, the so-called Jew. He is an outwardly religious person who practices sin as the pattern of his life. He might feel some conviction, but his life ultimately does not evidence any fruit of godly repentance because he continues in his sin. He pretends to be what he is not. The child of God may fall seven times, as the proverb says, but he rises again by God's grace. He rises again. He is not utterly cast down and fallen like the, like the unrighteous, like the wicked is. The wicked person lives in that state. They're in a constant state of sacrilege. We fall into that condition of sacrilege because we still have this principle of sin in us. But God is helping us as he makes us realize it, as, as he brings this to light in our conscience and we confess it and we say, God, help me. I'm in the day of trouble right now. Deliver me. And he does by his grace. You who have poor idols, do you rob temples? Do you commit sacrilege? May God help us not to do that, but to bring honor and glory to his name. Let's pray. Father, your word is searching, piercing. It cuts and divides between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. Lord, you are the one who searches the thoughts and intents of the heart as no one can. And Lord, we are all naked and exposed before you with whom we have to do. Father, ultimately, you are the audience of one that we must be concerned with because we are all headed to a day, a great day, the final day of judgment when you will render to every man according to his deeds. And Lord, it's those who see this need of salvation, those who are overwhelmed with a sense of their sinfulness because they understand not just the letter of the law, but the spirit that's behind it who are crushed and who call out to be delivered from this condition of sin and misery, wretched condition. Oh God, thank you that you have an answer for us. And the answer is your son, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life willingly for all who will trust in him as Lord and Savior, as the perfect substitute and sacrifice for sin, the the holy and spotless Lamb of God. Father, he is the acceptable sacrifice. He is the one who is acceptable in your sight. And, and all who are in him by faith have acceptance through Christ. No one comes to the Father but through the Son. And we will all be taught by God because you will teach us directly by your Holy Spirit. Your spirit confirms your word. Lord, we've opened your word this morning. Confirm your word to your people. Establish it to us, Lord, that we might have reverence for you. The fear of the Lord, that it would be always before our eyes. 
And God, may it become clearer and clearer to those of us who are struggling with assurance of our salvation that we walk in a pattern that is strikingly different from that of the world. Lord, we fall into sin constantly, but we know it and we come to you and we trust you and we, we ask you for cleansing and we look to your perfect son and he is our righteousness. The world will not do that. They are self-deceived. They trust in themselves. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who might be trusting in themselves still and who might be cloaking themselves under the name of Christian. Father, may you convict their heart and bring them to a place of true repentance that they might experience the forgiveness of the Lord and newness of life in Jesus. We thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.